I'd like to say hello to my co-host here, Mr. Michael Lejeune, and I'd like to welcome our guest expert today, Mr. Jeff Kuski. So Jeff's a senior procurement counselor. He is also the founder of GovCon Consulting and Expert Witness Services. He's got deep, deep level of experience and education in this space. And we actually just finished up a really great webinar with Mr. Kuski that was titled Strategies to Capture Expiring Funds and Sole Source Contracts. That webinar went for about two hours with the Q&A and everything. I am going to post that webinar also here in the chat. So any of you guys who want to go and watch Jeff's full webinar on this, he did a really wonderful job. And if you really wanted to understand how funds work within the government marketplace and gets allocated and distributed out and everything else, like that. And in addition to the way sole source contract works, he did a really great job at doing a deep dive on that. I've got a couple of tips of my own and I know Michael's got a couple of tips, but Jeff, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Carl and, and Michael, for inviting me to participate today. Awesome. We're glad to have you. In keeping with the spirit of the name of the podcast is GovCon Coffee and Issues, I'd like to first of all address what is the issue? So as we're here in the fourth quarter, obviously, there's a lot of buying that's happening to kind of close out the end of the year dollars that remain. And I'll start with you, Jeff, and then I'd like to kind of get your take on it. What's the biggest issue right now that would prevent somebody from being able to capture end-of-the-year funds or some of those expiring contract dollars? And I'll start with you, Jeff. Well, I think the biggest issue is if the government doesn't know your business exists or you have not done anything in the previous three quarters to get your name out there and to show your capabilities and your differentiators and responding to pre-solicitation notices and having a list of target companies, you're going to be at a significant disadvantage in the fourth quarter because those companies that do all those things will be successful. Absolutely. And Michael? Yeah, I think spot on there. You know, it's always go back to have you done the work? There's a lot of companies that have done the work to position for fourth quarter. If you're entering into the fourth quarter thinking, this is when I'm going to introduce people to my company, you're really going to have a hard time breaking into the market if that's the first touch. Absolutely. And just already stole my thunder before I'd logged in. I wrote down the, pretty much the same thing. You know, if you're going into the fourth quarter and nobody has ever heard of you, they don't know really what it is that you offer or what prices that you offer those services or products at, it's going to be a hard go at probably getting all of that done for so they know you, they know your prices because they're kind of like in emergency buying mode, in my opinion. And Jeff, I know one thing you and I share in common is that we were both in the supply core. And I know you did some different things, but to relate this experience to the way that we did fourth quarter year-end spend, and as the supply officer on USS Scout, we had a budget every year. But what would happen is that from different departments, we would get requests that maybe was not already in our budget from last year. So we put those on what we called an unfunded list. And I don't know if you had your own unfunded list, but like the whole drill was to be at the ready because we know it's not about if we're going to get extra dollars. Usually it's about when we get those extra dollars that we're ready to go. So pretty much all of those vendors and however that they interacted with those different departments or got the demand influence or requested to the supply office, when Q4 came, I had three 
people with government purchase cards. And we opened up our unfunded list and we knew exactly what products were wanted by what departments. And because they already had got pricing on it, we had all the pricing and we had everything that we need. So my purchasing agents were just like on the phone, dial in and dial in and, and making orders. And so, I mean, and we would spend like a hundred thousand dollars in like a couple of days in that mode. Jeff, can you share or relate to some of that from your own days in the supply corps? Well, without a doubt, that was the Navy Supply Corps, not the Army Supply Corps, Air Force Supply Corps. Carol and I both were in the Navy when the ships were made of wood and the men were made of steel. And so his approach was exactly what most Supply Corps officers did. Also, it relates very nicely to the authorities federal agencies have with the micro-purchase threshold, which is defined as below $10,000, where they don't have to have competition. They don't have to have small business set-asides. They can call up one source, get a quote, issue the purchase order, and pay with the government credit card. And all they have to do is ensure that the price is fair and reasonable. Back in the day in the Navy, we would always get three quotes just to make certain the price was fair and reasonable and, and competitive. But with the micro-purchase cards, that is one way to capture expiring funds. But again, you have to be on the radar screen before anyone calls you. And there's a nice distinction between being a persistent and being a pest. I think being in contact and keeping those government buyers aware of what your capabilities are, then naturally when they come up with a requirement, they're going to say, oh, yeah, Carol Bernard called me. He does this. He's very responsive and he can get things over to my activity very quickly. Absolutely. And so, Michael, you had just mentioned about the, the issue and, and how people need to get on the radar early. I'd like to kind of shift the conversation now about like some specific strategies maybe you could give folks. And, and we'll also, Jeff, you, I'll, I'd love to kind of hear your strategies and I've got something, but probably a lot of them will kind of overlap. But let's start with you, Michael. So if the number one thing you can do is really to capture into your funds, get on the radar early, what are some specific ways that you would suggest? that folks start actually reaching out and win? I'll give you two things. One is, you know me in research. I can't stress enough how big the research piece is. So actually knowing who is buying what you sell, I think is so important in this process because most people just find contracting officers or like, hey, the army buys what I sell. Okay, well, who within the army? Narrowing that down to where you actually have a real targeted list is extremely helpful because you can waste a lot of time picking up the phone and just calling people and they're like, you know, I don't buy that for the agency and I don't know who does, you know, or they don't care. They're not necessarily going to give you that information. So actually doing the research to figure out who is buying what you sell within an agency is one major thing that you can do. And you can do that well before the Q4. But when you get into Q4, one of the things that I found that's extremely helpful, if you are late to the party here and you're trying to introduce yourself, is to talk to them about a training budget or something else small that's unspent. That's probably been my go-to for the last five years. And every time I tell somebody that, I'll get an email that says, hey, I reached out to a contracting officer that I've gotten zero traction with. And they were like, yeah, we've got a $40,000 training budget. 
I had no idea how we were going to spend it. And let's set up something. So there are these training budgets, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 that aren't the focus of these contracting officers because they've got million dollar things they need to and multi-million dollar things they're trying to allocate. And then you call in and there's something small that they can knock off their list. That's a really big help to them. So I like to focus in on those things like that. And a training budget, the reason I like it, everybody has one. And it's one of those things that's fairly flexible on how they use it. So somebody might use it for a pilot project where you're going to come in and implement a website, a SharePoint site, and do some training for the people on how to use that SharePoint site and that sort of thing. So there's some flexibility to it. Everybody has one, and it's just a great intro or entree, if you will, into an agency you're trying to break into. Awesome, man. Awesome. Great tips. Jeff, do you want to expand on what Michael just said? Yeah, I think that was great advice, Michael. When COVID came about, a lot of the in-person training stopped and the companies that were able to shift and provide online training were able to continue to influence and to get task orders to provide training. So one of the things that happened was for those agencies that didn't think about shifting to online training or asynchronous training, they stopped spending and stopped issuing task orders. And if you have an existing indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracting vehicle for training, and they have not used all their variable budgets, it would behoove you to go out and reconnect with the program manager that's responsible for the training and also to the contracting officer say, hey, I can provide the training via this new medium. And in fact, we can actually cover more training because if we're doing it via a Zoom or a Teams meeting, a lot more people can participate and get the benefit of that training. These agencies also have requirements for training that they have to meet certain minimum hours per year of training for professional and then also for soft skills as well. So don't be afraid to go and reach out and say, hey, COVID kind of stopped some of the training. I have shifted to an online platform. I can still provide it, and we have an existing contracting vehicle to do it. Yeah, awesome, man. I want to touch on a point that you said, and you said following up with the program managers. And this is something that I tell folks a lot because if you're trying to call the contracting officers to pitch something for them to buy, they're usually not going to buy anything unless they've got demand from their program offices, right? So a lot of times going to the program manager or the department head or whoever is that person, it could be the end user, right? It could be like when I was on the ship and the quartermasters needed binoculars, if you reached out to the quartermaster and say, hey, buy four binoculars, get one free sale, you know, they might take you up on that in the end of the year spending. And then they request that from the buying office. And so that's another important point that I just wanted to make sure that didn't pass by anybody with regards to who are you contacting in terms of trying to influence that demand. And I'm glad, Michael, you also mentioned that, hey, even if you're late to the game, there's still some potential opportunities that exist out there. But again, you got to be talking to the right people. I do remember also when I was back in, in my roles in the government, you know, you're reaching out as, as the buyer, you're reaching out to your departments. If you get this extra money, you're like, hey, who needs anything else, right? It's like, 
last call for products and services. And then basically people will either come in or they don't. So that's when maybe we already have kind of expended out that unfunded list and we have some more funding. So, hey, anybody else need anything? And if we don't use all of that money by a certain point in time, then it kind of gets scooped up and allocated somewhere else. So these are, I think, some really key, important points to know. I'm really so glad that in your last webinar, and again, for those of you guys who joined late, we have a full 90-minute webinar on this subject called Strategies to Capture Expiring Funds and Sole Source Contracts. I'm really glad that you coupled up the sole source contracting component with capturing end-of-the-year dollars because I really believe that this is Another great way that people who have maybe certifications that have sole source authority or other things, they don't understand that this is a benefit to the buying offices at the end of the year because when they can go through a sole source procurement, maybe it's 8A or something like that. And I tell folks all the time, hey, 8A is great because you can get sole source contracts from that, but make sure you're educating those program managers or those end users on what 8A can do for them. And what 8A can do for the end users in the government agency is to help to expedite projects through a process. So we already talked about that a lot of end of the year buying happens under the micro purchase threshold. But what if you got like $5 million and you want to get a construction project done and you're just rolling up into your last month? This is the huge benefit of sole source authority is that whereas a normal acquisition, you'll have to put it on the street for 30 days in construction. And it's, I think, got to be in pre-solicitation for 15 days. So 45 days before you can even start to analyze the bids, that's a long time. And if you need to push this through quickly, 8A contracting, for example, you could just identify the vendor that you want to use and say, hey, we want to use this vendor. The program office can request that specific vendor from contracting And as long as it's under the thresholds for sole source contracts within those programs, which are very high, they can say, hey, I'd like to request Jeff Kusky to come in and do some consulting services for us at a million dollars. And they're an 8A participant. So when you educate your end users on the benefit of being able to expedite if they request and they make it known to the contracting office that they already have the 8A authority or whatever other authority that is to do the sole source. Not everything has to be 8A, but I think that that's where some of those sole source buys happen a lot of times. And if you ever look and you're watching Sam at the end of the year, you see a lot of sole source contracting happening. Jeff, what are your thoughts on that in terms of how sole source contracts relate to capturing end of the year spend? I think you first have to understand the competition policies within the federal government. They've got three major categories. One is full and open competition where everyone gets to compete. You're a small business, you get to compete against large businesses. The second category is full and open competition after exclusion of sources. And the biggest exclusion is for small business socioeconomic programs to set aside contract opportunities for a hub zone, historically underutilized business zone, or 8A business development firm, women-owned small business, economically disadvantaged women-owned small business, uh, service-disabled veteran-owned small business. And there's also some other categories within full and open competition after exclusion of sources. But the one that, Carol, you're talking about is what they call other than full and open competition, where there's seven exceptions that allow the federal agencies to award a sole source contract. 
as I mentioned in the presentation, the press will call a no-bid contract. There is no such thing as a no-bid contract because you have to submit a proposal, a budget, and your proposed costs before you can get that sole source contract. So out of the seven exceptions to full and open competition, if you have a unique product or service that no one else has, then that's the first justification. But not all small businesses have invented a new innovative solution to meet the government's needs. And even if you did, then you have an uphill battle explaining and educating those government customers on how your unique innovative solution that no one else can provide provides an order of magnitude improvement over their existing capabilities. The one exception is the fifth exception authorized by statute. And the statutes that allow sole source contracting, the 8A business development program, if you don't have a unique product or service and other 8A firms can provide it, you're eligible for a sole source contract no matter what phase of the 8A business development program you're in. The other one would be under the Veterans First Act for sole source contracts to service disabled veteran-owned small businesses and also veteran-owned small businesses. And that authority is actually listed in the Veterans Administration Acquisition Regulation. So that allows you to get a sole source contract, even though there's other companies with that certification that can provide it. So the issue you have is that, and I should also mention, under simplified acquisition procedures, FAR 13.5 and 13.501, brand name, if there's a requirement for a brand name and no other equal product will meet the government's needs, you can also get a sole source contract. So the key is making certain that you educate your customers, you let them know what you have and remind them of these authorities. They are not allowed to use expiring funds as a justification to award a contract. So you always need to make certain they have the valid need and then they can use expiring funds at the very last minute. And there's a tremendous amount of spend that goes on in the last month of the fiscal year, the last week, and even on the last day. Joshua Frank had a great presentation a couple of months back that showed that amount of spending going on. Awesome. Michael, do you know Josh Frank? Yeah, I might have met him a couple times. You want to piggyback off of what Jeff yeah. just said there? Yeah, for those that don't know, Josh is my business partner. <laughs> so Josh and I have known each other for 20 years, and we've been in business together for 10 years. So, so yeah, one of the things that I would say is also goes back to the research phase is you can actually look at how high this uphill battle is. So you know, Jeff was talking about the uphill battle sometimes. You can actually determine how big that uphill battle is going to be to educate somebody based on previous contracts. So we have access to all of this information and you can go into the SAM data bank, pull a report and see right down to the contracting officers out of their last year, two, three, four years, whatever data you want to look at, you can see how much of that is sole source. How much of it is full and open? How much is it going to other different types of stores, whether it's WSB or SDVSB? You can actually see those breakdowns in the SAM databank. You just got to make sure you've added those fields to your report. 
And most people, when they ask me, how do you find all this information on contracting officers and all that? It's all in the same databank. You can go and pull all this information. You just have to set up a report. And so if you don't know how to do that, reach out to me. We've got some great videos on Federal Access that walk you through in what I would almost consider excruciating detail on how to set up those reports. But it's mainly about the fields you set up and that sort of thing. My favorite field in all the SAM reports, there's a couple. It's prepared, modified, and approved by. So those are three of my favorite fields. Because guess who approves, modifies, and prepares? Those are contracting officers. So you can literally, for most agencies, when you click that box in your download for your report, you will literally get an email address for a contracting officer. Now, sometimes the email address, you have to strip out like their office code or something like that in order to get to them. But now I go from, I don't know who buys this, to I've got a name of a contracting officer, I can go pop that name into SAM.gov, just an opportunity search, and it will likely bring up with all of the open contracts that contracting officer has. You click on one of those, you scroll to the bottom, there's their name, their phone number, their fax number, and their actual email address. So all of that information right there through a couple of little searches. And so I do like to look at that information and go, Hey, look, the contracts for the last five years, this guy is doing 20% in small business. This other person's doing 47%. This person's much more educated on how to pull those levers that Jeff was talking about. I probably don't need to go in there and say, Carol, are you aware that you can do this sole source and how do you do it? But the guy that's only doing 10%, I may have to go in there and educate them a little bit. Hey, here's a couple of ways we could get this done with those end of year funds like Jeff was talking about, because they still have to play by the rules. And it's just a matter of, do I educate this person a little more, a little less? You know, where do I bring that up? I'm just always trying to finesse that a little bit because I have found, depending on who you're talking to, you can offend somebody pretty quickly and they're like, well, I know how to do that. And then now they don't want to talk to you. So it's just kind of like finessing that whole conversation, even though you may still be using the same words, but having the research to kind of tell me, what do I really need to do? What do I really need to teach Jeff while I'm on this call? That's my two cents on. on, on. Well, Michael, I learned quite a bit from you and Joshua, and you guys are the expert in government marketing. Constantly refer people to your company and the Govology webinars. I just want to add on the sole source contracting. There's a big one for those companies that have received a small business innovation research or small business technology transfer phase one award. And the purpose of phase one is to demonstrate the technical feasibility of your proposed innovative technological solution and to also demonstrate the commercial potential. The regulations that apply to the SBIR, STTR program, is actually a policy directive issued by SBA. And that policy directive says that once you have received a Phase 1 award, that satisfies all competition for Phase 2 awards, which is typically demonstration of a prototype in a relevant environment. And Phase 3, typically commercialization, where you're actually selling a product. That's very powerful, and you can get sole source contracts on a Phase 3, which is a regular contract because a Phase 3 is defined as derived from, extends, or completes a previous SBIR or STTR funding agreement, and they're using non 
SBIR or STTR funds to make that purchase. So that's very powerful. And also you get those that right for sole source with subcontracts. So don't forget about subcontract opportunities during the end of the fiscal year as well. A lot of these large contractors have existing contracting vehicles that have very broad statements of work, such as engineering services or logistics support. And the contracting officers can easily add additional task orders onto that without having to go out for a new competition, if it's broadly defined like that. And I see that happen quite a bit. We have one question in the chat that talks about what about economically disadvantaged women-owned small business set-asides. And so other than the ones that are authorized by statute where you're allowed to get a sole source, even though there's other small businesses that can do that, unfortunately, in some of the small business programs, the contracting officer can only award a sole source contract when they do market research and they determine that there's not going to be at least two independent companies compete for that requirement. That's kind of the rule of two in reverse. Rule of two says that if there's two small businesses that can compete, then the contracting officer should consider setting it aside for that category of small businesses. So unfortunately, you don't have the same authority under the Women-Owned Small Business Program as you do under the SBA 8A Business Development Program and the Veterans First Program, which is then implemented in the VA acquisition regulations. Awesome. Those were some great pieces of gems of wisdom and knowledge. I want to just kind of cap everything off. And then, uh, again, for those of you guys who joined us late, we will have a post-show Q&A. If you happen to be watching or listening to this on demand, I invite you to join us in the future for one of our other episodes. You can see all of our uh, past episodes and join us on an upcoming episode at govology.com forward slash issues. And that's where you'll get to take part in our Q&A. So, and if you're watching this on streaming right now, because we're also streaming this, go to govology.com forward slash issues, sign up and jump into the Zoom call that we're going to be having if you want to join our Q&A after the show. I want to recap some of the things that we discussed. And we started with talking about really what was the issue, why some people are going to struggle capturing into the year funds. And, and the main thing that we all kind of concurred on independently was that they just are not yet a known entity by those folks that they want to sell to. They don't know who they are, what their products are, what their pricing is, what the solution to that would be you know, for next year when we're looking at coming to the fourth quarter of next year is to get in there and kind of Q1, Q2, and Q3 to get your products and your company known, not only the contract people, but also by the people who request goods and services from the contracting office, because they will forward those procurement requests up to the contracting folks. And then in Q4, your job is to pretty much follow up, right? So it's like, if you've presented a product or a service, you might have even presented a price. And actually, I would suggest that you present a price when you're talking to program managers and end users. That way, they know a price and they can actually send that to the buyers, even though the buyers might not be ready to buy it yet. But like what Jeff and I talked about, sometimes I'll put that on an unfunded list. But if they don't have a price or anything on their unfunded list, the fourth quarter is usually not a time where they're doing a lot of market research. They're just trying to kind of buy what's 
been demanded. So get your prices in. And if your end users like what you have to offer, follow up with them in Q4. And, and if they say we don't have the budget, because that's a frequent comment that a lot of people get, you know, we don't have the budget. Great. If you like what we have, either can you put us maybe in the budget for next year or can I follow up with you in Q4 to see if there's maybe some end of the year funding that comes available? Then probably say sure. And then make your follow-ups in Q4. The other thing, know the rules. So we talked a lot about the authorities and also how the game is played and how things work. And that's going to differ for everyone. And I tell people this all the time, can't give you one roadmap that's going to be right for everybody because everybody's going to be in a different industry. There's some common principles that apply, but everybody might have a little bit of a, a different pathway. And so it's incumbent upon you to understand that. Michael talked about the market research, and, and he and I drilled on that all the time about the market research. I also talk about the two sides of market research, where you got the quantitative and all of the good data that you can get from historical spend in the federal databases, but the qualitative side of market research, which helps you fill in the blanks, asking those questions that you just don't know of both maybe the buyers and your end users so that you can get the facts. I always drill that too, like get the facts, get the facts, get the facts. Because once you understand the facts of how things happen within the environment that you want to sell to, then you can start to craft successful processes for selling into that environment. Also, we mentioned once you know the rules, maybe sometimes you can educate your customers on some of those authorities and the rules that apply so that they can actually understand how does those rules benefit them? Because a lot of times the end users are not procurement professionals or they're not contracting officers. And if you're an 8A company that has sole source authority, you know, that end user might not know that they may be able to get you're by expedited through contracting at the end of the year through a sole source authority. But if you educate them, they can request that. Last but not least, and then I'll like to circle back with Jeff and Mike on some closing thoughts and comments. I have a, a class also uh, on the Govology platform called Marketing Your Business to Government Agencies and Prime Contractors. And inside of that, I tell people, know your MVP or know your avatar. And what I mean by that is that that's that program manager, that end user, that end customer, not maybe necessarily the contracting officer, but that end customer. Maybe it's the head of HR or some other, like head of IT, if you're in IT services. And sometimes those folks are hard to find. But if you actually go and pull up an agency or a prime contractor on LinkedIn and you start looking at all of the people, you'll see their titles and you'll start to say, oh, that looks like somebody that I need to connect with. And you can connect with them on LinkedIn. And then there's some different tools. There's one called Lucia, L-U-S-H-A, that actually you can integrate with your LinkedIn. And if there's any email address or phone number that will pop up on your LinkedIn profile that you can actually get the email address and the phone number because not everybody checks LinkedIn. So I always encourage people, hey, get all the information that you can on these MVPs, like the phone number, the email address, the LinkedIn, and try all three methods to contact them. If sending them a catalog is a method that you use, send them a catalog or a snail mail. Whatever works to get you connected with them, go to the industry conferences when they're out at those. So those were the recap items of what we talked about today. But uh, again, Michael and Jeff, I'll let you guys kind of cap off with some final thoughts and then we'll break and then we'll go into our live Q&A today. So Michael, go ahead. 
Sure. I think first, I didn't get a chance earlier to say thanks to Jeff for saying all the kind things he said to us. So thanks for that. (laughs) Really appreciate it. But, you know, again, for me, it comes down to research so many times, researching and understanding what you're doing. I, I saw this former CIA agent the other day talking about how the number one skill that they had to basically stay alive was to be the smartest person in the room, to like literally know everything you can about every other person in the room. And I think for a business owner, we really underestimate knowing everything you can about your ideal customer. You were talking about the MVPs there. Knowing everything you can is so important in this whole business of doing business. And then the other thing that I'll say is I really feel like, you know, Jeff touched on this and the last thing he said, I really feel like people, for whatever reason, downplay how important subcontracting is. Like subcontracting is such a great way to get into this market if you're new. It's a great way if you've been in the market to snatch up a a few extra contracts here or there. And so many companies look at subcontracting. It's almost like the COVID of government contracting. Like nobody (laughs) wants to touch it. And I don't get it. Like it's one of those things where it is so profitable done properly and it gets you into an agency and it can just do so many good things for your company. And I'll tell you this, this is is my thoughts on the, the current environment we live in today. Staffing is not just all of a sudden become a problem. It's not like, oh my gosh, COVID happened. Staffing is now an issue. Staffing has been an issue for years and it's only going to get worse. So if you are an expert and you have experts on your team in whatever field, you are highly valuable to every prime that's out there because it's so difficult for them to find people like you that are experts at whatever it is you do. So don't discount chasing after some sub work to get in, get your feet wet, or grow your presence with an agency. I think sub work, it's a huge opportunity that people just completely forget about, especially in Q4. Awesome. Great comments, uh, Michael. Uh, Jeff, your final yeah, thoughts. Give us your Jerry Springer final thoughts. <laughs> well, no, don't do that, Jeff. It's going to be a, a new thought, and especially for those new to government contracting that may not have prior relevant experience that's similar in size, scope, and complexity to what the government agency currently wants. I think a lot of small businesses sometimes overlook in their business capture plan, they go after everything. And you need to be very targeted because bid and proposal costs are not a direct cost. It's recovered under your general and administrative overheads. And if you don't get any contracts, then they're not recovered at all. So the key sometimes for new businesses to seek out those low-price, technically acceptable acquisition strategies where you just have to demonstrate that you're technically acceptable and past performance under those strategies, you're rated neutral and neutral is a passing grade. And so that enables you to build up some past performance. You also can build up past performance as a subcontractor. And certainly it's more difficult to find a mentor under a mentor protege program, but those companies that do find mentors and participate in that get to grow their business and get that critical assistance they need, including getting sole source contracts from that mentor. 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, great stuff, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jeff and Michael. As always, it's a, it's a pleasure to co-host this show with you. And for all of you guys who join us and are watching us on the streaming services, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you on our next episode of Coffee and Issues. At this time, we're going to go to our live Q&A. And I'm going to pull up the chat and I'll just go ahead and kind of read through some of the questions here. Michael, we'll start with you here. Do you have any recommendations on resources to set up micro-purchase cards? I think it's pretty straightforward. We just did a, a podcast recently on level three processing. Most people don't even know what that is or that exists. And level three is basically where you're capturing more information about the transaction. If you're not set up to do level three credit card processing, you're actually being charged more. So you get a discount on that, on like the credit card fees and stuff. And so that's the short version of it. But there's a podcast that I just did, the title of it, it was like episode 207 or 208, something like that. I don't remember which one. I can look that up here and you can learn about level three processing. And I I think that's really important. Any of your payment gateway companies can do it for the most part. They just have to set you up properly in that piece of it. So... I would suggest asking them essentially two questions for your merchant card processor is, will you be able to have the ability to accept government purchase cards? And is there a different fee that is associated with accepting those key cards? Because actually, when we got set up ourselves, I did ask those questions and I found that a couple of providers actually charged a little bit of a higher percentage fee for Mm -hmm. accepting government key cards. I don't know why, but those are two great questions probably to ask if you're doing a little bit of research from different companies. Did you post that link in the chat, Michael? Yep, I just did. Okay. So Michael just posted that link on that episode that they did talking about that, if you guys want to grab that. Jeff, do you have any further thoughts on that one? No, I think that was great. Okay. So we'll go to you on this one, Jeff. How do you research and locate those contracting officers who have training budgets? Yeah, one of the things I do, and this is part of the research, is I'll use usaspending.gov or Federal Procurement Data System Next Generation and do advanced searches to see which agencies have actually purchased in the past what I sell. A training budget is rather broad, certainly, even if you were to do and put in training in a matchmaking service, no matter who you use, you get all sorts of training that it's not applicable to your business. So you need to drill down to exactly if you're doing sexual harassment prevention training, then that's what you need mm-hmm. to search for. Yeah. And once you find those, you're going to find things that are essentially above the micro purchase threshold in the past. They listed contract actions at 3000 and above. So you may not capture all the task orders and purchase orders that are issued under $10,000 in those systems. And you also won't see things below $25,000 on SAM.gov contract opportunities. So I'm going to essentially say that for all those soft skills for training and for employee development, professional development type training, every single agency has a budget. And so you need to look to see who may be underserved and who's not on the radar screen. And I'm going to tell you, everybody's chasing the Department of Defense. So if you go a little bit lower on the food chain there, 
you may have more success in actually approaching the agencies that are close to where you live and developing a professional relationship and then meeting with those decision makers and providing a capabilities briefing, certainly responding to the pre-solicitation notices out there, requests for information, sources sought notices, and draft RFPs, things like that. But part of that research also is a lot of times the people that are responsible for the training at their specific activity, they don't know how to contract for it. It may be a centrally managed budget, or it may be a blanket purchase agreement, or there may be an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract vehicle. So the key is to get into the agency, perhaps talk to the Office of Small Business Programs or the Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization Office and get to the decision makers and ask those questions. Where do you advertise the requirement? What's your budget? How often do you need it? Who has authority to place orders against that contracting officer, that contracting vehicle? Do you use the GSA multiple award schedule for training? So that's all part of the market research. Understanding what your customer wants, what they need to meet their mission, and how they acquire it. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be different for each agency. And so you don't want to learn. There's over 800 federal agencies. You don't want to learn how 800 federal agencies contract. You want to have a targeted list, you know, and so that you can spend your time wisely. Uh, That was great. And the next question is kind of a piggyback off of that same question that we just asked, but they say I share Anton's question above. I provide diversity, equity, and inclusion training online and in person, but would like to know how to find the contracting officers who can purchase those sorts of training opportunities. And again, Jeff, what you said about looking at the systems, uh, usaspending.gov, for example, is a, is a great system. One of the things that I like about that, so if you go to usaspending.gov, and by the way, if you guys are working with PTAC counselors, a lot of PTAC counselors are very proficient in going and helping you do some searching. But if you just go to the usaspending.gov up on the homepage, you can click on a little tab that says like advanced search, and then that'll bring you up some filters. So for your particular, you've got some keywords like diversity. So if you put in the keyword diversity and maybe narrowed it down with another filter that used like the 6100 series of NAICS codes, which falls under the education, now that you're not getting all like non-education related stuff, you'll may get a list of results that start to educate you on like what actually has been happening with like diversity education spend in the government marketplace. Then like what Michael said, you know, you start to drill back and when you learn how to use those systems and you can figure out like, hey, what's the office and who's maybe the contracting officer. You can contact the contracting officer. You can have a conversation with them. But also you might ask that contracting officer, like what department typically is the ones that request the training because I'd love to contact them, share with them what we do. The other thing that I wanted to piggyback off of Jeff's comment when you said they don't know how to contract for it, it's a comment that I shared with a, a veteran I spoke to recently who told me they, they've been having a lot of conversations with these end users about they got a lot of money to do this certain thing, but they just don't know how to buy it. And I said, well, go ahead and, and 
submit a proposal to them, you know, tell them how they can buy it from you. You don't always have to wait until something comes out on solicitation. So if you're having conversations with somebody, be prepared to go ahead and just send them a proposal, even if it's not the contracting person, but you can send it direct to the program manager and say, here's what we do, here's the cost. And then they have really something to take a look at. And then if it's under 10K, they could probably just use their government purchase card, depending upon what it is, to get the buy done. If it goes above the threshold, then they may need to send it off to contracting. And then again, that's where some of the specialized authorities may come into play if you have those that exist for you. So knowing how to play the game and and how to ask the right questions and just be the investigator is really important. All right. The next question is, what strategies should an Alaska Native Corp ANC apply to target sole source contracts? Who wants to take that one? I'll jump in and talk about it here. You know, it's not any different just because you're an ANC to a large degree. I know some people are like, whoa, hang on. You know, there's an ANC. There's a whole bunch of contracts over here that I always look at if we first focus on who buys what you sell, then we look at how they buy what you sell. Mm-hmm. And in that order, I take the focus off of me for a minute and what my company is and my certifications. And I look at how is my client going to buy this? And that's where we look at, are they buying contracts that are being sole sourced to ANCs? No, then guess what? That status may not be that important if my focus is trying to sell to Fort Hood, for example. And so I think this is where a lot of people go wrong, in my opinion, where a lot of people look at like, well, hey, I qualify for this and I qualify for that. And you could go down that road, but who buys what you sell and answer that question. And then once you figure that question out, zero in on just two or three organizations that buy what you sell and then look at how they buy what you sell and figure out. Are they buying what you sell and they're spending a lot of money in the WSB category, in the SDWSB category, in the ANC category, whatever it is? Because just because you have a status doesn't mean you can force that into that agency. If they're buying and they're using a different status for whatever reason, then that tells me I need partners with that status if I don't qualify for that status. Again, it goes back to that research. Who buys what you sell? How do they buy what you sell? And then from there, you can start to expand the filter and say, so how do I leverage this ANC a little bit better? Are there particular organizations that are using it more than others and stuff like that? And so we can do the research just based on that status and see if that's the right move for you. I like to look at the services or products first because it gives me a a snapshot of of everything that's going on in the government than just to drill down and just click a box that says, I only want to look at A&C contracts. Great. Jeff, do you have something to add to that? Yeah, I do. In fact, I'd like to share my screen here. Joshua Uh, from RSM Federal has done a great job in, in saying that you don't lead off with your small business certifications. You lead off with your differentiators and your value proposition. And so you should have an elevator pitch and a capability statement that really shows why someone should contract with you, either as a prime contractor or subcontractor. So here's an example of an elevator pitch that I use quite a bit that I got from Joshua. And it's in the yellow here. And so hopefully everybody can see that. 
And I want you just to take a minute to read that first paragraph and then the second paragraph. The third and fourth paragraphs are related to existing relationships you may have or not have, and you want to team with another small or large business. But just take a minute and read the highlight there. I believe that's right out of the government sales manual. At least it used to be. It's in the new one. So well, it's Joshua gave it to all the PTAC counselors at an APTAC conference yeah. years ago. In fact, I do have the reference down here, number nine. I'm not going to go down to that. Yeah. Yeah. Gave it to it's us, in but. the current government sales manual. And so this is just, it's illustrative. And people say, well, I don't do this. I say, well, make it yourself. Do you think you're going to get a callback or get past a gatekeeper if you're showing the value and the benefit to the company? It's not about your company. It's how you can satisfy someone's problems. And that's what government contracting is all about. And yeah, I think, you know, to your point there, as a small business, we tend to focus a lot on ourselves and not the customer. And that's why so many people struggle. They're so focused on themselves that they're not focused on the value they provide. And they're just trying to get that contract. And whether it is a prime or a contracting officer or a program manager, they can smell that immaturity. And they're like, this is just like one of a hundred companies that I've talked to this month. Sure, send me your capability statement. I got a folder I put those in that I never open, and I'm just going to park you right there. And, and that's that's just what happens. So, Carol, I know we're kind of running out of time. There's a question that I want to answer real quick. It's the last one in here. It talks about subcontracting. I think the reason people struggle with subcontracting is tied to exactly what Jeff and I just finished talking about. It's they don't know how to communicate their value and they're just communicating something like their status. The other piece of it, which again, Josh and I talk about this all the time, is they've done no research. I don't want to sound like the research guy here today, but that is the biggest thing of like, if you call up a prime and just say, Hey, this is Mike and I'm a service disabled veteran and I'm in IT. And if you've got some IT contracts, man, we could hook you up. Like that's like the average pitch they get. And again, that is the, hey, send me your capability statement. Let me stick you in this folder. If we ever need anything, we'll reach out. You never hear from them again. So like doing 10 minutes worth of research to figure out who's buying what you sell, how they're buying what you sell, who they're buying it from so that the call is not to just some random prime, but you're actually saying, oh, I've noticed that ABC company is in at the agency I'm looking for, and then doing some research on some opportunities with that agency, calling the contracting office, calling the small business office, having a conversation with them about what's going on, and then taking that information to a prime and saying, hey, ABC company, I noticed that you do a lot of work at Fort Hood, and there's this big contract coming out on the fall, we're experts in this one little area where I know you're not an expert, and I think we'd make you really competitive. Would you like to sit down and talk with us about teaming on that? Heck, yeah, they want to talk about that. You've done some homework. You don't sound like everybody else that's called them, and now they're ready to sit down and have that conversation with you because you've captured some valuable intelligence. You've name-dropped the contracting officer and small business office. You know what you're talking about. I, you've literally separated yourself from 99% of the other small businesses and you've positioned yourself 
that, hey, I'm going to take this meeting and I'm going to talk with Mike because this is not a normal small business with their hand out asking for a contract. So that's the really short version. Therese has been help, uh, you know, kind enough to put in there that who buys what you sell, the step-by-step process. That's kind of a lead into the research phase. I think Josh probably has an advanced teaming webinar as well, Carol, mm-hmm. and that's a really good one on how you go from taking the research and turning it into actionable steps that you can take with those primes. So and now I'll shut up. So. Can I just piggyback one thing on yes. Putting the focus on the targeted customer, your client. When you meet with a decision maker, whether or not it's a government decision maker or a prime contractor, after you've done research and you know the answers to a couple of questions already, I ask three questions. Who do you currently use to provide that service or that product? And then they tell you. And then you, the second question is, what do you like about that service or that product? And if you're talking to someone that owns that requirements and loses sleep at night, they're going to tell you. If the contracting officer is there, they won't tell you. The third question is, if you had the ability to change anything, what would you change and why? And then you stop talking. And if they have issues or we'd like to have this or we kind of wish the contract allowed us to do this, then you say, well, that's interesting. I, I just provided that same solution to the VA. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to share, if I can, I just uh, uploaded a picture, which was actually shared by, and I don't know if it's going to work. You guys can try to click to open it, but it was a, it was an image that was shared by uh, Anna Ehrman. She's with the Department of State, and it's a cartoon that says, Hi, Anna, I'm one of the 987,254 small businesses you met on Industry Day last month. You do remember me, right? And it was just kind of funny. It reminded me of when you were talking, Michael, about that, you know, just really differentiating, making yourself known to those and and how you approach the government. Well, I think that most of the rest of the questions were also on subcontracting. So I think that we got them all. But if we missed anything, guys, please, again, join us at Govology Nation. Uh, That's our LinkedIn group, govology.com forward slash nation. Ask your questions there if we happen to miss one. And I'd be happy to answer it and let Michael and, and Jeff know that we've got another question there. But again, thank you, Mr. Kusky, for joining us and imparting your wisdom uh, here today with our listeners. And Michael, thank you again for just being a great partner on this show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. I learned quite a bit from you. Thank you. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.